Welcome to the Fishers of Men podcast, brought to you by us at So Much Media. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. I'm Lara Samara Sands. This podcast is about relationships and your walk with Jesus. It's about the true stories of Christian men and women's struggles with chastity, sex, marriage, and relationships in a post-Christian culture. episode of Fishers of Men. Today we have David Cloutier on with us. Uh, David, would you mind introducing yourself and your work? Sure, sure. It's great to be with both of you. I am an associate professor at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. I just started here this year, and for the past 10 years, I taught at Mount St. Mary's University, which is a little liberal arts school in, in rural Maryland. So I have made the move from the hinterlands to the center of the universe or the swamp, <laughs> depending on <laughs> depending on your persuasion. Right. Um, and uh, I have uh, been writing on sexual ethics basically from the beginning of my career as a Catholic, uh, a Catholic moral theologian. Obviously, you can't really do ethics in Catholicism without thinking through some of these uh, these questions of sexual ethics. Uh, my first book was a textbook designed for undergraduates at Catholic colleges and universities called Love, Reason, and God's Story. That came out of my own experience of, of teaching the marriage and sexual ethics class um, uh, to Catholic undergrads. And um, uh, I have, I've, I've continued to publish articles on that. Um, although I've also tried to make connections to other areas of the moral life for Christians, especially questions about how we should live economically and in, in relationship to material goods. That's amazing. That's really fascinating. <laughs> yes. Great. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have plenty to talk about. Yes. Yeah, I'm sure. So what got you started in this field? As I said, if, if you're training as a, as a Catholic ethicist, I actually went to Duke University for my, for my doctorate, which is an ecumenical program. So Catholics and Protestants together, which is, uh, which is really great. But if, if you're training to teach at a Catholic institution, as I was, you, you kind of have to know your way around uh, the issues in, in dating and, and sexual ethics uh, in detail because they're so they're so controversial. Right. Um, but honestly, the reason that I started writing in this area was it was so much easier to teach classes to undergraduates on questions like these mm. than on some other theological topics. So for example, this morning, I was actually teaching a freshman class here, which tours people through the Bible. We were dealing with the first few chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, and I was getting all excited about the coming of the Holy Spirit and Pentecost. And, you know, a few people were falling asleep in the back of the room. Not because <laughs> I wasn't excited, but because they just didn't really grasp the importance of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Like I was excited about this, but not everybody was on board. But when I asked, do you want to have a good relationship with your with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Everybody's interested. No one's right. falling asleep in the back row. Right. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, it's more gratifying to be in right. the classroom when you're asking questions where you don't have to you don't have to also sell people on the relevance of these questions. They, yeah, they right. care about them. Yeah. So, yeah. That's one reason why we really wanted to do the podcast is that we were noticing any workshop 
on dating mm-hmm. relationships. Mm-hmm. It's like packed right. to the brim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you yes. know, like the small groups of the Bible study or, you know, the yeah. like theological talk, it's just kind of like crowds right. are, yeah, you know. But then right. like you go to the dating seminar yeah. or whatever and it's, everybody's like, and there's like a ton of questions and everybody's super yeah. passionate and yeah, so I love it. I love this topic. I think it's inexhaustible. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, as, as, as certainly your podcast shows, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so that's how I got into it. Mm-hmm. Can you speak about our consumption habits, particularly when it comes to technology and how it affects our relationships? Uh, sure. There are a lot of different angles on this question. Actually, the place I would want to start, and maybe this could be more of a dialogue, is I'm now in my early 40s. And so I have kind of seen things change. Mm-hmm. Like things have changed a lot sure. in, a, in a short time mm-hmm. on this issue and the question of how we use technology to interface. The place I have started talking about this recently is Pope Francis in his encyclical of 2015, Laudato Si on the Environment, introduces this language of the techno, what he calls the technocratic paradigm. And it's as, as, as kind of the, the fundamental root of our crisis in our society. Mm-hmm. And w- what he means is not to say that technology is bad, but that there are kind of two different types of technology. And one was a kind of traditional technology where we discovered tools that would help us receive what nature was already offering to us, but that the technocratic paradigm is a move from receiving things that nature is already offering us to simply taking from nature whatever we want to gain from it. Uh. Right? So so I've, I've thought about this. There's obvious parallels to moving from a sexual ethic where the focus is obviously one wants something. I mean, one is interested in getting something if one is dating somebody, right? There, you, you do want to get something out of it. But there's a way in which we seek to receive what is already there in nature. Whereas it seems to me that there is, there is a shift exemplified probably in hookup culture and the uncertainties that surround what people's objectives are in the hookup culture, where everybody kind of gets to define what they want out of a relationship for themselves, mm-hmm. right? So it's not a matter of romantic relationships or dating relationships having a certain potential and then we develop ways of relating to one another that allow us to receive what is already there in potential. But rather, we start making up for ourselves what we want to get out of the relationship. We can define the relationship ourselves. And I think that that causes a, a great deal of distress, but also just a fundamental level of uncertainty mm-hmm. where there are no givens in a relationship. We don't know what to expect. We move from one person to another and everyone has their own rules, it seems. And part of what we're trying to discover is we're trying to discover, well, what does this person want? Because I can't presume that everybody wants the same things and that they might, they might just operate a little bit differently, but we're, we're kind of have the same thing in mind. Rather, it, we don't quite know what other people might have in mind. That's so true. Oh. But it seems like sometimes we don't even know what we want ourselves. <laughs> yeah, you know, we may think we want one thing and then we, we're we like, oops. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I vicious, want something different. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle because we, we have this ideal of what like we we think 
um, on a subjective level what a relationship should look like. And just like you said, David, where the other person may not have those same parameters. And so you're just fighting to define it for yourself for one, but for to figure out the other person. And we're not adept as a society anymore to to communicate those feelings or those the way intentions to, yeah those intentions because we are in this kind of like hookup culture and that's kind of the dominant way of how people relate especially in a big city like LA and one of the challenges is that it's not even always clear what the hookup culture means yeah right it, it, it means different things to different people one of the the literature all suggests that one of the advantages of the language of hooking up is that it leaves ambiguous what the future of the relationship is. It leaves ambiguous what actually happened, right? What does it yes. actually do? Right? Yes. It's, it's, it's intentionally ambiguous. Yeah. We should ask ourselves the question of why it is that people would want ambiguous language. So if we think about traditional, and when I say traditional, I don't kind of mean narrow and frigid and puritanical. I just mean most cultures that we know of, there's a given idea, picture of what people's goals are when they engage in whatever we name it, a romantic relationship, a dating relationship, marriage, ultimately, right? And there's no doubt that societies over time, they develop different pictures of what that relationship looks like in practice. So clearly the way we think about men and women relating in marriage is different from the way in which it was thought about a hundred years ago. Right. And so that changes over time. And there's often a social, a society conversation about that. But nevertheless, there is an idea that we're having a shared conversation and that we need to establish some kind of a shared picture of what the goal is, even if there are different means to achieve it. But I think one of the things that really has changed is that we just don't think that there has to be a common social understanding of what the goal is. Yeah, frustration. Yes. Why is that a problem? So here's how I would articulate that that that's a problem, even from a generic secular standpoint. Mm -hmm. This is a problem because these relationships are dangerous. Dangerous, exciting, but also dangerous dangerous, right? <laughs> dangerous in the sense of potentially harmful. And so part of what was going on when we named the goals in the relationships was a recognition that even if you name the goal, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. That doesn't mean it's going to be safe. And so part of what you were doing was helping people have some kind of limits, common understandings of how to manage themselves within these relationships about whether they were going well or badly, as opposed to just allowing people to guess, because allowing people to guess means that it's dangerous, exciting, but mostly dangerous, dangerous mm. in, yeah. the, in the sense of nobody really knows whether it's, it's going well or badly. You kind of have to guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to guess in coordination with the other person who might also be guessing. And it seems to me that that, that is part of the reason that we have such difficult, grave difficulties in our society with, mm. with things like uh, sexual harassment and yeah. assault, uh, not even knowing what consent means, much right. less rich Christian conceptions of these relationships. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, that it seems like that 
is kind of the root cause of having all these blurry lines. I've seen a lot of people stay in relationships because they feel like they're settling and things aren't really going well, but th then at the same time, they feel like, well, maybe there's more that they can do, uh, or more that the other person should be doing, or, or maybe there's a way that they should change, or a way that the other person should change, and then they end up, they're just not very happy, but then they don't really know mm -hmm. what to do about it, and not really knowing what either of them want out of Mm -hmm. the relationship right. and, and 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 where i think this is amplified to kind of uh get back to the question about uh consumption and particularly technology i i think that as the, our technology becomes more and more pervasive in inter in mediating relationships i think it becomes even more dangerous in terms of there being no rules and no clear idea for the relationship. I just read an article this morning when I was browsing the news. I guess Google is adding a tracking feature oh gosh. to its Maps program. And what uh. we know Google already tracks us on our phones. But what the tracking feature will allow you to do is it will allow other people to track you. Oh, how could this so possibly go wrong? They will, they, you will pull up your, you will pull oh up your gosh. Google Maps, it will know where you are, and it will show to everyone else who you've connected to in the Google network where you are. That sounds like scary awfulness right now. Yeah. Like you said, dangerous, dangerous. Yeah. Continuously. So I am trying to, I have to admit, the, I knew this podcast was coming up. The first thing I thought of is, Boy, I've had a few dating relationships where <laughs> that would have been horrible. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it would have been good because you would have known immediately that this was a person that you didn't actually want to spend time with mm -hmm. because they were monitoring you all the time, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that there, there was just a kind of a obsessive sense of uncertainty if you were not present about what you were doing, yeah. where you were, and these kinds of things. And, and so imagine having this kind of tracking device whereby you can track continuously the location, but of course not what they're doing, right? You can see where they are, but you can't see what they're doing because you're going to text them and ask them what they're doing. Probably. The Marauder's but, Map for oh, the stalker. Oh, I mean, this just seems horrible. Yeah, I mean, it just man. seems horrible. But it is it is a case where it's going to be very difficult to resist this once it becomes commonplace. So once right. it becomes once it becomes usual for people to know where other people in their lives are, where their friends at are, all times. at all times, at all times, once it becomes usual, it will be very hard for any individual person to resist it in relationship to their friends, right? Yeah. Because if, if you're doing it with five of your friends, what what, what happens when you say, well, I really don't want you to track me pretty much everywhere I'm going. Yeah. It's just like Facebook, Facebook when people are like, yeah. well, I don't have a Facebook. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> right. Who are you? Yeah. Right. Well, so you, you fall outside of the network because the technology is, is 24 seven mediating the relationship. Now yeah. we're just talking about it in terms of friendship, but if we transfer this, oh, it yeah. seems to me that this has really challenged us in terms of developing habits and healthy norms 
in terms of developing relationships with people because of the fact that our relationships with people are so constantly mediated at this point. That's so true. I, I find just in my everyday interactions that people more and more have kind of a hard time starting a conversation face to face. Yes. Uh, you know, like you walk into a bar, everybody's on their phones and it's, it's actually kind of intimidating just to have an in-person face-to-face interaction. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, I, I know, I know, I know people who are younger. So this is again, one of the mistakes, like I've been used to being the young person in the academy for a long time. And now I feel like the old person because of what <laughs> I could say, which is to say that I have, I have definitely noticed that 20 somethings do not make eye contact in the way that I am habitually used to human beings making eye contact. Mm -hmm. There's a different regime that has developed. And I've seen some research on this, but it's increasingly coming out that the effect of having the phone on digital natives is that face-to-face conversations and eye contact being the way you manage eye contact in face-to-face face conversations being one of one of the the key indicators is very crucial and people who are used to talking on their phone have hard time with eye contact in person it feels too invasive to them it feels too unmediated to them or at least that's the theory that people are coming up with that that face to face is more intimidating certainly we've we've heard stories i'm sure you've heard these stories about the fact that that people don't really like phone calls anymore yeah they they that because phone calls seem to be too immediate and demanding compared to texting kinds of back and forth where you can manage your communication better and you can manage multiple multiple strands of communication at the same time yeah and you can delete and go back and phone conversations don't allow you to do those kinds of things. And so they make you more vulnerable. Well, obviously face-to-face conversations make you even more vulnerable. Mm. But what is this going to do to intimacy? Yes. What What is it going to do to what we've, I think, for at least the last couple generations, thought of as really the, the heart of what we think of as love? Yes. Um, this kind of face-to-face private encounter that has a kind of depth to it that you don't experience even oftentimes with your best friends or with your closest family members. Well, what if people don't have the skills to actually have that happen? Yeah. What does it mean Uh, for the future of our species? (laughs) And we've said it before. It's the irony of technology is that we in 2017 have never been more connected on a global scale or even to our friends as much as we are now when you think about all the platforms that you can connect to a person, including texting and, you know, social media and all the sorts of and all of that. And yet living in LA, and I'm sure this happens everywhere, we have 8 million people here connected more than any time in history. And we've never been more lonely as a society or even on a global scale, we've never been so lonely. Yeah, because you can't take away Mm -hmm. the desires of the human heart for for intimacy and connection. Yeah, that, that can only happen face to face or physically being present. And even then, like, 
when's the last time you had just a face-to-face with a friend and not had your your phone? phone? And it's like, you're always, like you said, David, there's always this other conversation happening, being mediated. You have five different words with friends games going on along with the five different text message conversations that you have along with all the Facebook things that are happening. And it's just, we are becoming a society of ADD people. Yeah. And we don't know how to do relationship. The ambiguity too, it's Mm -hmm. like pretty much every digital interaction has some degree of ambiguity in it because there's Mm -hmm. like tone is ambiguous and you can at any time kind of just drop the relationship and ignore the last text that a person sent you. I think ghosting used to be kind of a lot more difficult like when you lived in a small town in a community (laughs) Mm -hmm. you couldn't just like walk away from someone and never talk to them again. You had to do something to address the relationship and the end of it. Yeah. Yeah, and you have to you even have to end phone conversations, right? That's, I mean, that's true. Yeah, you can't just say you can just hang up. <laughs> there has to be some resolution, and it, or, unless you hang up on people, but that is a kind of resolution that everyone knows what that means. You've even added a dimension here when you talk about distraction and the fact that we're not focused, right? Even if we can get to a situation of intimacy, if the phone is present or the expectation of conversation is present, there there is always a divided focus and that's challenging. But let me move to another part of my work. Where, Where I've gone with this in the economic sphere is I've spent the last few years thinking about our inability to stop, that is our inability to name limits on these kinds of material phenomena, right? Because I don't think anybody wants to, I mean, maybe somebody wants to go back to the Stone Age, but let's let's face it, we're, we're, we're doing this podcast, it's on Skype, we're, we're, we're fully in the technology age. Right, <laughs> right yeah. Um, so the, the question is, are we able to put limits on this kind of material progress? That is, unlimited material progress may not be a good thing. Mm. Some material progress is a good thing, but we need to learn when to say enough, when we've gone too far, and how do we recover the skill of trying to name these kinds of limits? Mm. So in the ancient world, um, uh, they had a name for this vice of going too far with material things, and the name was luxury. Mm. luxury. Luxury was a term of criticism. Luxury, if you were a luxurious person, right, it meant you had gone too far with these kinds of material goods, and the material goods no longer served some kind of higher goal, like relationships or like the good of the society rather the material goods were a good in themselves Mm. you were just seeking to consume the material goods right and this could be food it could be with with fine art it could be with a large house a too large house that the goal was the house itself not what the house was supposed to be for which was living in the house yeah And so ancient philosophers, and of course the Christian tradition picks up on this, criticize people by saying it's not that material goods are bad, it's that material goods are oriented towards other ends. And so we need some way to talk about people who who can't observe those limits. Because if they don't observe those limits, it's going to be bad for them, 
but also it's going to be bad for the society. Mm-hmm. And, and so Socrates, for example, saw people building big houses and consuming too much food as the beginning of the end of the polis, the city, because what happened was that everybody wanted more once you started doing this. And once everybody wanted more, either you were going to have internal conflicts in the city or you were going to go to war with other people Mm. in order to get more. And and that was the beginning of the end of social unity, right? Mm. So anyway, this is a fascinating history. And once I I kind of stumbled upon it, I recognized, oh, this is is really interesting because when I drive around Washington, D.C., every new apartment complex is a luxury apartment complex Mm -hmm. right yeah yeah we've lost this language where and it doesn't have to be luxury but luxury works well because it worked well for a long time um uh, we've lost any ability to name something as enough um rather we just always assume that the next step is a, 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 a more of a good the next way of connecting ourselves is better that now that we can monitor people on on Google, right? That's mm. clearly better than before where we simply had to text them to find out where they were. Right. <laughs> right. Whereas before they had to actually be physically at home and we had to physically call them on their landline yeah. to, in order to communicate. I don't, I, I, I continually amaze students now by saying I went to college, there were 1,600 people on this campus, and we coordinated all kinds of wonderful activity, and not a single person had a mobile communication device at all. Yeah. I actually asked my mom that question. <laughs> she looked at me like I was crazy, but I was like, wait, so like when you were dating, you had to be at home. <laughs> and someone had to call you to and to, to actually go call out. upon you to actually go to your or house. you had to see yeah. each other in person right. and she's like yeah yeah we would just like run into each other or we would call each other i'm like yeah but like <laughs> what if you weren't home how did you even date like it really blew my mind mm-hmm. when i started no, thinking through I, those implications right i i don't I don't think it's conceivable to, to, I mean, it, it does feel like the stone age. It's less than, you know, I mean, I went to college in the early nineties. It, it's not that long ago. It's not and that long ago. no one was walking around even with a cell phone, much less a smartphone. So you, you had systems whereby you coordinated activity and it all worked and it was a lot less, intr- it felt a lot less intrusive and yes, sometimes people called your room and your roommate took a message or you had an answering machine. Thank God for answering machines, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, it was all, it was, there was connection, but it was limited. Mm. It could only go so far. And of course, that allowed for all kinds of space for these face-to-face interactions or happenstance encounters right? I, I can't imagine being in college nowadays because of the number of people that I met through classes. You'd, you'd be, you know, you'd, a class would end and of course you would talk to other people in the class, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> As you were walking out the door and you would strike up a conversation. And I mean, of course people still do this, right? But, but by and large, what people do when they leave class, right? As they turn their phone on and find out what was happening while they were gone. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> And it's really interesting that you mention luxury and the use of goods 
because it seems like, of course, objectification of other humans has always existed throughout right. the span of time. But now it seems like we are so much more likely to see another person as an object. I, I mean, speaking just from the dating field, like online dating, you can, you really look at just like a list of specifications for a person and uh, some pictures, you yeah, know, like and Amazon. You, you might as well be shopping on Amazon. Yeah. And well, I've been doing some research on the seven deadly sins. Um, cause I'm writing a script of, about the seven deadly sins. And so it like all of the seven deadly sins kind of revolve around a spectrum of misuse of what a, something is intended to do, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. so like something that someone pointed out to me recently, which I hadn't even thought about, like gluttony, which nobody ever talks about anymore as a mm-hmm. sin, really. Uh, one, it's basically just the misuse of food or taking it out of the context where it's nourishment and the social context of food. So even if you're just obsessed with food and thinking about food too much, even a healthy diet, or you like mm-hmm. have a non-health-related obnoxious diet, where you're you have all these like things that you will and won't eat and you're just obsessed with that and that's mm-hmm. all you're thinking about all the time and that gets in the way of you having a good meal and connecting with others over a meal. Yes. Yes. That classifies as gluttony. That really made me think a lot about kind of new forms of lust that have come about through technology right. of seeing another person as an object and how easy it is now, even if you're trying to do dating in a very innocent way and you're not looking for a hookup. Yeah. Then kind of the right. way it can filter down into your soul. Yeah. I just want to harken back to what you were just saying, David, and it all leads to this limitless. I, I, I'm just thinking about how you phrase that. You know, we have put ourselves in a culture where we have no more limits and we are the generation of I want it now at any time as much as I want and, and we're this, the maximizers instead of being satisfied with yeah it. and we the, right. endless there's, possibilities yeah there's an insatiability of the human lust I will use that word because it's <laughs> it's translated now into not just our daily lives and I love what you said about like luxury and goods versus consumption of goods and all that. But just in terms of the dating world and and looking at each other and finding relationship with each other now with the advent of online dating, you know, there's this endless list, like you said, Mary Ashley. And even in that, even when you find somebody, you know, there's endless possibilities and you're always unsatisfied because you always think you're looking for like, what is the next best thing? And Mm -hmm. or what if I didn't choose the right choice and, yeah, and it just puts us in this place where we are conditioned to believe that we deserve the best and we can always right. look for whatever that next best thing is. And right. it's insatiable and it's maddening and it, it leaves everybody <laughs> frustrated because you not only are you conditioned to feel like you deserve whatever you want, but you are also put in position to feel insecure about what the other person is looking for. And so, I was- yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because it it is the it is the comparison mm-hmm. that's one of the one of the uh, biggest challenges with luxury. Part of the reason that we don't feel like we have enough is because we find ourselves comparing with others who mm-hmm. have more or better. And that's and why Facebook is, users are more depressed, yeah. right? That's right. Right. <laughs> I was going to cite that. So there's actually kind of two sides to this. On the one hand, um, 
sure, the, the, the fact that there are these online dating sites and you can go through millions of products, quote unquote products, means that you always have this standard for comparison. But the, the flip side of this is that we all can curate our image in yeah. a way that is very hard to find a comparison with in the pre-internet age. So we all manage our Facebook feeds, which is to say we all consciously think through the public presentation of ourselves that is is happening um, on on Facebook. And we all can't avoid comparing ourselves to other people on Facebook, right? I'll just use an example because I just thought of this. I have a, a good friend, a good colleague in Catholic theology who was just fortunate enough to have an audience with the Pope, which obviously very exciting for a Catholic theologian. And <laughs> she just replaced her Facebook picture, like her headshot, Facebook picture with a picture of her shaking hands personally with Pope Francis. Right. Mm -hmm. Why am I bringing this up? Because it is absolutely impossible for me not to look at that and be like, Jealous. she's a better, she's a better theologian than I am. <laughs> Every time she comes up on my Facebook feed, I see her shaking hands with Pope Francis. And I think I don't have a picture of myself shaking hands with Pope mm. Francis. Now, as I said, obviously I say to myself, that's, I'm not an envious person and I'm not going to sit here thinking that this is a bad thing. We're collaborative. It's almost impossible for me not to see that. And then even to think about the phenomenon that we're talking about, which is that we curate our Facebook feeds. And so part of what has happened there is that she has decided her public picture is going to be a picture of her shaking hands personally with Pope Francis. And what does that say to everyone else? Hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very complex example because I'm talking to her about obviously a personal call, a, a, a colleague whom I have great respect for and who I'm friends with personally and who I'm not going to be like, you, you saw Pope Francis and I didn't, but <laughs> we, this just never would have happened before. Yeah. Right? yeah. At best we would, it was a private audience. So at best, you might see some kind of an article in a Catholic newspaper where you saw a picture, right? right? And that got sent around and then it disappeared. But yeah. this will probably be her Facebook profile picture for a long time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And every professional colleague who has a, who, so it, so I'm using a professional example. If we transfer this to personal relationships, right, romantic relationships, and the extent to which people are curating their public image, not just for other people about what their relationship is like, but they must be curating it for their partner as well, which is to say your partner sees you on Facebook or potential partners see you on Facebook, and you're obviously managing that image. It depresses me, and partially it just depresses me, and that's all I have to feel because I don't have to deal with it. <laughs> like, just imagine uh, the like, depression if you did have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't, I can't fathom it. It seems like uh, uh, I don't know how one would negotiate the world um, yeah. because of the fact that we, we, we just are invited constantly to curate our image, and when we're invited to curate our image in comparison with other people. We are going to manage it in accord with the standards that are being set around us and around us is now around us in the virtual space. And then, uh, yeah, there's also the added element 
with technology mediating the relationship, people say things that they would never, ever say in person. Yes. And so when you're putting yourself out there on social media, you're running the risk of needing to be extremely vulnerable. I mean, you're like opening yourself up to the most vile, horrible insults that people right. can right. think of. Um, people like, put in so much time now just thinking of creative insults and, you know, ways to call people names. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's affecting people on a very personal level because it's just so easy to forget, oh, that's that's a real person. Yeah. And you just get into like a flame right. war. Right. Right. the uh, conclusions of my, my book about setting limits. Obviously, we're not going to go back to a day when, uh, say, a government or some kind of state imposed limits. And most of us are not going to live in an Amish community. The Amish are one of the few subcultures in American society that very intentionally and consciously manages its material life, right? right. To put limits. Assuming that's not going to happen. The concept of vocation, I said, was mm. crucial for defining what is enough in those areas. So right. asking yourself the question of what is the purpose of the interactions that I'm having on Facebook? What is the purpose of the use or not of various kinds of technology? So I've been very on the fence about Twitter as a technology, but I've tried to use this idea of vocation as limiting the extent to which I will allow Twitter to take over my <laughs> take over my life, right? Oh, yeah. uh, and I think this is an important connection to tie back to this question about dating and marriage culture, because this was also something that I emphasized in my uh, sexual ethics textbook, is that ultimately people need to think about these relationships in terms of personal vocation, that is, in terms of some sense of responding to a call from God for their lives, mm. right? And that they should think about their romantic relationships, they should think about their um, uh, use of technology, they should think about their material consumption in terms of how it helps them fulfill this vocation uh, that, that they have from God. And that that is a really important centering concept in an age where we are going to have different standards. Not everybody is going to think about intimacy in the same way. Not everybody is going to use technology in the same way. And so we can't abstractly say this is definitely the standard, but we need something to limit ourselves, limit ourselves in a good way yeah. so that it can enhance our lives. And our vocation should be one of, at least one of those limits. That is an, an excellent way, I think, to prevent the whole time suck of social media yeah. and just the, just the use of everything in general, but especially social media. If you can think about it in terms of mission and tie it into your vocation, then you don't end up spending hours and then you feel even worse after and you're like, what did yeah. I just do with my time? <laughs> that didn't, I know. I didn't right. do anything. I mean, that, that the, the problem with that is, of course, that we don't know how, like, exactly what you're saying, David. Like, even if we did have that goal in mind, it's so hard to not be tempted yeah. to just mm -hmm. do the thing that everyone All else is doing. Yeah. Because it's so easy. It's at our fingertips. The devil really knows how to mess with us. Where, yeah. we, where we are weak, he knows exactly where to hit us. 
just as a, as a kind of a wrap-up question and to bridge everything that we're saying, how would you say this all in general is now affecting how we look at sexual ethics? You kind of brought it up. Technology and dating, is certainly it has, it has provided some good, but it also has yeah. brought out the the worst of us, just as yeah. technology does. It, it, it enables it, the best and the worst. It enables both. <laughs> of people. In general, how does that come into the sexual ethics of how human beings are, both secular and the church? Because I think that has also blurred, especially in this day and age where it's so easy to just do everything, whether you are practicing a faith or not. We have been sucked into the secularization mm. of how to date. Yeah. I would, I would say two things in response to that. Um, one of which is actually to come back to this, this point about personal vocation. And the more I have taught, the more I have recognized that the only way to get between a kind of traditionalism that seems very narrow and turns a lot of people off on the one hand, and a kind of do whatever you want, everybody has their own ideas, relativism on the other hand, is to really help people focus on the idea that God has a call for people's lives. And they have to take that seriously. And that taking it seriously means that they have to give time to personal discernment, prayer, community. They have to give time to feeling the challenge of aspects of the Christian tradition that they disagree with, and really saying, whatever I'm going to do in my life, including my romantic life, right? I have to have a sense of the fact that this is a response to God, and not just a response to God later, right? So one of the things that I, I think we can't, quote unquote, turn back the clock on is that people are getting married later in life. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's not to criticize people who, who make the choice to marry, say, right out of college or something like that. But there are all kinds of structural reasons that aren't wholly negative that lead people to delay marriage, which means that, say, from age 15 to age 30, let's say, people are involved in romantic relationships, but that they're maybe not meeting their life partner or maybe that's not exactly what's going on. And so so we have to answer the question, well, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And if I'm just having fun or this is just my time in life, this is just the time in life when you do that, what that means is we don't have an answer, right? I mean, when people answer that way, they don't have an answer. And so what they need to do is they need to think about integrating that period of their lives into their personal vocation as well, right? And there there are Christian authors that try to work on this well, and, you know, then there's debates about what... What exactly does that mean? And that's fine. But I think if we don't emphasize the idea that, hey, whatever you're doing at that time, it's not just fooling around or fun or whatever, right? That it has some relevance for your life vocationally. Um, Yeah. And I I think that's really, oh, I'm sorry. No, and I I was just going to say, the second point to build on that is for us to recognize that as we take vocation seriously, we need to recognize that there is a lot of wisdom in the traditional norms of sexual ethics, which is to say the traditional kind of don'ts of sexual ethics. Vocation, I think, is a positive, enlivening kind of concept that leads people to think about their lives in terms of fulfillment in relationship to God. But we should recognize that along with that fulfillment is going to come 
certain kinds of refusals of the world. And I think that that's where the traditional norms of Christian sexual ethics come in, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Norms against certain kinds of sexual behavior are the obvious example. But I, again, think that those need to be contextualized with, within vocation in order for them to make sense in this world. Yeah, I was just going to say that in regard to the first point, and I also think the second point, that mm -hmm. if you are looking at your life and your interactions as part of your vocation and part of becoming someone, like becoming even more the person that God created you to be, it is easier not to look at that period as a period of failure. Because, you know, that's one thing that we, we've we heard from our listeners is of needing to come to terms with when you're single still in your late 20s and your 30s or even your 40s and you didn't expect that and you wanted to be married and you thought that was your vocation to just feel like all of these interactions where you're not meeting your life partner are just kind of a waste of time and right. you're right. defective and everybody else is defective and you know there's nothing that you can do about it but if you actually see it as constructing something positive and providing lessons to learn and also i think you make a very good point about the limits of traditional mm -hmm. ethics and how that can also really prevent some emotional heartbreak <laughs> as well in that period you know it can make it a lot easier to deal with and integrate it to the rest of your life right. and it is also a uh, not only in terms of protecting oneself emotionally, but in fact, one of the great problems in our society is the number of children that are born outside of marriage. Hmm. And this is a, you know, a very tricky topic, but we're not talking about a marginal phenomenon. Um, we're talking about 40% of children who are born outside of marriage. And if one is pro-life, then one assumes that that's the better outcome. Right. Because obviously there's a whole nother set of children who are conceived, who are, who are not brought into the world. And ultimately, the structure of marriage and family is endangered by that phenomenon, right? I mean, it's just difficult to know how you pass on the tradition of intimacy and family life when you have so many people growing up in a situation that is disadvantaged. And of course, not no fault of their own. It's not a judgmental claim, right? Yeah. It's a it's a long-term social claim that says we, we have to figure out some way to reconstruct a culture where the ordinary normal circumstances of a child is to grow up in a stable, loving, intimate relationship, a household where that is that relationship is at the center. And we are just not in a culture right now where that is normal. And part of the reason is, again, I would go back, people don't think about this, but this is obviously related to sexual activity within relationships that aren't headed towards marriage, mm -hmm. right? It's hard to know how you would solve that problem. You would solve the, the longer term problem of the family and the culture without also taking seriously the fact that this is the, the problem is a result of millions and millions of choices of people saying we, you know, we don't really have to respect that norm. Yeah, and that's interesting that that forty percent is still so high even after like forty years of contraception being <laughs> readily available. 
I always say to my students, and I, I don't want to, <laughs> we'll have to turn this back to a slightly lighter note before we end. But uh, uh, I always say to my students, say, say there are 15 million women between the ages of 15 and 35 who are using contraception regularly, right? And say the contraception in practice has a 2% failure rate, which means 2% of women using it over the course of a year will find themselves pregnant. Well, what's 2% of 15 million? Mm -hmm. A lot. A lot. <laughs> That's what I say. I say it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's 300,000, right? So that's 300,000 unintended pregnancies. If everyone was using contraception faithfully, which obviously the Catholic Church thinks is, you shouldn't be doing in the first place, but there's obviously disagreement about that. But but even with the successful use of contraception, you're going to have 300,000 children being born every year in unexpected situations, mm -hmm. right? For any one person, yes, a 2% chance seems very small. But when you're talking about a very large pool of people, you mean that's a lot of people. And so 2% adds up to a lot. So I encourage people to think about their personal choices as personal, but not only personal, right? That these kinds of personal choices have social ramifications when they're added up over a lot of people, a lot of relationships. Yeah. And that's, that's such a good thing to end on and that's also just such a good thing to keep in mind for all of our actions i think yeah. all <laughs> of our every action will have some sort of consequence and ramification that goes beyond ourselves and right yeah well thank you so much for talking to us today this was a really delightful conversation <laughs> and, um, thanks so what is the name of your book so my book is called love reason and god's story an introduction to catholic sexual ethics and if anyone is interested in, in what I was saying about, about the vice of luxury and the history of that, my more recent book is called The Vice of Luxury from Georgetown University Press. It discusses that history and what we can do about things like technology and consumerism today. That's amazing. I, I really think I'm going to get your book because that's really interesting to me. Well, thank you so much, David Cloutier. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I hope you have a great day. <laughs> yes, you too. And great to be with you and glad to be talking with all of you who are listening. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. This has been another episode of Fishers of Men. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at fishersofmenpodcast at gmail.com or find us on our website at fishersofmenpodcast.com. We are also on Facebook under Fishers of Men. Follow us on Twitter at at LA Gone Fishing or on Instagram at Fishers of Men Podcast. There is an underscore after each word. Please also remember to rate and make comments on iTunes if you feel so inclined. It's really important so that other people can discover our podcast. I'm Lars Samaris-Hams. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. Until next time, keep swimming. <laughs>